0: Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we begin this season of Advent, a season of waiting and expectation. Stir up our hearts to make this prayer of Psalm 80 our own, that we would long for Christ's returning, that we would long for our own restoration, that we would long for the restoration of all things. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I wonder, do you identify with a favorite Christmas character? Is there a movie or a person kind of in the Christmas story that you identify with? Some of you are pretty skeptical. So maybe you identify with young Susan Walker. You remember her, the skeptical little girl in A Miracle on 34th Street who is finally brought to believe in Santa Claus? Some of you might think you're George Bailey. Now the world's just going to be better off without me until Clarence the Angel shows up and shows George Bailey the difference that he's made and it's a wonderful life. I was going through our directory, our picture directory the other day and I think we have one or two Ebenezer Scrooges in the church. (laughs) But I actually think it's different than what you think I'm thinking. It's not the Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the story. I think we have some Ebenezer Scrooges from the end of the story. Those who have been shown remarkable grace and now pour out that grace on people around them. I know some of you young guys wanna think you're like John McClane, but you are not. (laughs) And Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Here I stand, I can do no other. (laughs) I have come to the unfortunate but probably obvious conclusion that I am Clark Griswold. I am that overly optimistic Christmas fan who is always about this close to losing it. Through that entire movie of Christmas Vacation, every year I approach Christmas with probably just a little too much eagerness, and that Christmas spirit can sometimes mask the underlying tensions of my own life or the lives of the people that are around me. Advent, as a season of the church's calendar, it's an opportunity for us to pause, to not give in to our worst Christmas impulses. Instead of fake cheer, it's a moment to feel longing and sorrow even. Instead of instant gratification, it's an opportunity for us to wait for fulfillment. Advent gives us time in the midst of our cultural insanity to look to Jesus with eager expectation. Let me ask you, what do you want Jesus ...to do for you this Advent season? What would be your prayer? I want us to take the words of Psalm 80... ...and make them our prayer. Specifically, I want Jesus to turn us... ...and return to us. Those are the main actions that we see in verses 3 and 7... ...here in Psalm 80 turn and return. In verse 3, you have this language, restore us, O God. And then again in verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. If you have a physical Bible with you, you might have a little footnote there, and it will point you down to the bottom where it gives you an alternate uh, uh, wording of turn us or turn us again. And in fact, that's what the King James Version has translated that as, turn us. And that language of turn us means repentance, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But then you also have the language at the end of verse 2, and then again in verses 3 and 7, come and save us, let your face shine, let your face shine that we may be saved. And here, what the psalmist is feeling is God's absence. He's saying, something is wrong in my life. I need God to come to my rescue. I want him to return. I want him to come and save me. What's going on that makes the psalmist feel this way? Well, Psalm 80 was written about the time that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian invaders, So roughly 722 B.C. Some of you, if you know the Bible story, you know that after King David, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into two. The ten northern tribes became the kingdom of Israel, and the two southern tribes became the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel was mostly massed within the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And in fact, the capital city of that northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria in the tribe of Ephraim. The capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom, was down in uh, Jerusalem, was down in the tribe of Benjamin. We think that this is what's going on or this is the time frame for this, for this psalm because of the unusual names that we read in verses 1 and 2. Now again, if you're a, a reader of the Bible, you've read these names before, Joseph and Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin, but you don't see those names very often in the psalms. This is one of the few psalms that make mention particularly of Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons. You remember at the end of Jacob's life when everyone was down in Egypt, Joseph brought his two sons to Jacob. And what did Jacob do? He formally adopted those two boys as his own sons so that they became part of the 12 sons of Israel part of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they got their own land inheritance alongside their uncles, Reuben and Gad and Judah and Simeon. Benjamin, this other name that's listed here, he also has a connection to Joseph. He is Joseph's younger brother. Benjamin was a very small tribe and his land, including the capital city of Jerusalem, was on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we know historically for three years prior to the kingdom of Israel falling to Assyria, the Assyrians came and went pretty much at will, uh, almost like the Russians in far eastern Ukraine. They occupied it, They took over cities, they hauled people and goods out to their capital city of Babylon. And the southern kingdom of Judah, even though they weren't overrun by the Assyrians, they were actually made into a vassal state of that empire. And so the king was pretty much a puppet, and they had to pay a pretty hefty tribute every year, even to remain relatively free. But as we get closer to 722 BC, the stranglehold that Assyria has on the kingdom of Israel becomes more and more apparent. And now even the people in the southern kingdom of Judah can see that their own destruction is at hand unless God comes to their rescue. That's why they cry out in verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Verse 2, stir up your might and come to save us. Now this makes sense, right? If we're in trouble, what do we do? God, get over here, quickly. I need you. Why are you taking so long? Are you even listening to me? Are you even there? What makes this prayer more complicated is that it asks God to be merciful and gracious to a people who had consistently and flagrantly rebelled against him. Ephraim and Manasseh, along with the entire northern kingdom of Israel, they had fallen into deep and degenerate idolatry. Their kings had consistently disobeyed God. The people had rejected God's law. And now this psalm, written by their cousins in the southern kingdom of Judah, this psalm calls out to God and asks God to rescue them, to save them, even though they don't deserve it but it's not just the northern kingdom that's in trouble have you noticed the pronouns in these seven verses it's not they and them it's us and we and our you see, the southern kingdom, even though it was relatively stable because it always had a descendant of King David on its throne, even the southern kingdom could feel the hot breath of the enemy as it bore down on them. And so this psalm, it's a, it's a shared lament. The people of God corporately, both those who have stayed relatively obedient to God as well as those who have rejected God, Together they are calling out to God. The good people aren't pointing the fingers at those sinners over there. They recognize that they are also complicit. Do you notice the the terrible language of verse 4? God is angry with their prayers. They're eating the bread of tears. They're drinking tears by the court. They recognize that God is judging them, that God's hand is against them, and that God is using this foreign enemy to exercise his judgment. Now is not the time to stand next to our neighbor and try to figure out who's relatively better. Now it's the time for repentance, It's the time to call out to God with everything that we have for God to come and save us. We want God to return. We want God to return to save us. But Psalm 80 also asks God to turn his people in repentance. Look again at verses 3 and 7. Restore us, O God. Restore us. O God of hosts. Again, I think the King James Version has a better translation of this verse than our English Standard Version, which we normally are preaching out of. Instead of restore us to our our former greatness, give us back everything that we're in danger of losing. It's not material. It's spiritual. It's not external, it's internal. Turn us, O God. Literally, this psalm is asking God to repent his people. Well, what, Eric? Um, I mean, I thought that repentance, that like, that was my part of the deal. Like, I thought that I was the one who had to repent of my sins. Well, this sounds weird until you remember the history of Israel. Over and over, they have proven themselves unable and unwilling to follow God. We can go all the way back to the Exodus. We don't even have to point fingers at the northern kingdom. We can look at all of Israel and say that despite seeing God work in miraculous ways, they were consistently worshiping false gods. They were always trying to make alliances with pagan kings. They they polluted the worship of the true God, despite everything that God had done for them. Despite all the warnings that God had given to them, they refused to turn. It would have to be God who turned them. It would have to be God who repented them. And friends, the same is true for you and me. Listen to how one author puts this. Repentance is not a work that we perform. It is a gift that Christ gives. It's not an emotion that we stir up within ourselves. It is a motion that Christ enacts within us. And the motion is always away from us, away from guilt away from self-devised methods of atonement and toward Jesus. Do you think that Jesus will answer that prayer? Go back to verse 1. How does the psalmist address God? Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. How does Jesus describe his own ministry in the Gospels? Well, remember the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is the shepherd who goes after us when we go astray. He finds us. He puts us on his shoulders. He rejoices to bring us back to the fold. He is the active one. He seeks, he finds, he brings us back. What do we contribute to this? Our sin. That's what we contribute. Because from beginning to end, repentance is the divine work of compassionate restoration. Lost sheep don't find their way back into the fold. They are the object of a search and rescue mission. That's repentance, a gift that we receive. Can we make these prayers from Psalm 80 our prayers this Advent season? Can we pray that God would come back and rescue us, that his face would shine on us, that he would be personally present with us. I confess that as a young Christian, I sometimes struggled to make that my prayer, to be excited about the coming of Christ. There was still so much that the world had to offer me. I wasn't quite ready for that to be my prayer. But of course, few cuts and bruises later, a few dashed expectations, seeing your own sinful brokenness and that around you, suddenly you want God to come back. Suddenly you want him to do a work for you that you know you can't do. Because as much as I would like to say, oh, I'm not like Ephraim, I'm not like Manasseh, What kind of warnings have I failed to heed? What kind of encouragements to return to God have I ignored? When we make this our Advent prayer, we are humbly standing before God. And we're acknowledging that our needs are greater than we would ever want to admit But in faith, we are looking to a Savior who is greater than our sins. This psalm teaches us to go boldly before God in prayer. There was no reason that God should have heard this, this call, right? God would have been well within his rights to ignore this request to come to the aid of people who had ignored him for generations. And yet the psalmist paves the way. He doesn't go to God pretending that everything is okay. He doesn't hide his shame or his sorrow. And strikingly, he doesn't assure God that if he'll just help him out one more time, he'll promise to be better. No, no. He goes with an honest reckoning of his own needs. He goes with an honest look at the power and the glory of a God who sits enthroned between angels. And he asks God to turn and return. To turn his people in repentance and to return to come and save them. To let his face shine on them. That phrase, to let your face shine on us, that's a plea for God to be visible among his people. You can imagine how scared they were. Would God come to their rescue? Or would God let them suffer the just deserts of their rebellion? You and I, when we're suffering, we can often think that God has withdrawn himself from us, Maybe our sins have finally pushed God away. Maybe he's washed his hands of us. But friends, the irony of the gospel is that our sins, that's the only thing that qualifies us for God's work on our behalf. The people call out, come and save us. How will God answer? He says, yes, Again and again, in the history of God's dealing with his people, he says, yes, a child is born, a son is given, who will save his people from their sins. That's, that's what Jesus' very name meant, wasn't it? That's what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1. And every time Mary or Joseph or every time one of his brothers or his friends or his disciples and every time even his enemies would say his name, Jesus, they were speaking back God's yes to this ancient prayer. Friends, will you also go boldly? boldly to God in prayer and speak back to God His promises and His character. Prayer doesn't add anything to God's knowledge of a situation. Prayer doesn't change God's eagerness to help. But God God has chosen to use prayer to to move His plan of redemption forward in, in the broader world and in your life. So go boldly before him, not not as a supplicant, hoping that you'll get something from your king. Don't go before him in fear, thinking that God has every reason in the world to ignore you. But go as a son. Go as a daughter, one who has been turned by their own father. And now, assured of His love, you can confidently lift up your needs and desires. You can confidently bring to Him your hopes and dreams. You can even sit with your fear and your sorrow at His feet. You can go to the God who has come to save us. You can go to Jesus and know that He will hear you and that He promises to come again. Let's pray. Father, turn us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, grant us the gift, the motion of repentance. Break up hard hearts so that we might see the beauty of your grace. And then, Lord Jesus, return to us, not just so that we can be rescued out of here, but so that this world and everyone in it can finally and forever reflect what you intended at the very beginning, that the earth would be full of beauty and truth and goodness, turn us. Return to us, O Lord of hosts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.